Hey team, it's Matt Rinkine here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Aaron Clark, and I'm going to give a little bit of a summary first of how I've come to know and respect and love Aaron, because he's amazing. And here are a couple of things, and then Aaron can build on this. I know Aaron as someone who is a passionate baseball fan, former baseball player. He is a principal in a school in the Rock Hill School District here in Rock Hill, South Carolina area, here in the southeastern part of our country. Aaron is someone that I've had the privilege to speak in front of him, and I saw that he had a very quick intellect, and he took notes, and he's a very studious man. And as I've gotten to know him, I also know that he's a father of three, beautiful wife, three children, and I wanted to invite him on the show today because he has a phenomenal story. And you would not expect this. And some of the time you go deep under the waterline and you get to hear a life story and how someone became the person they are. Aaron's story, in my opinion, is just amazing. And I wanted to have him tell it on our show because it's just such an amazing story. So this is someone that I respect. This is someone that has risen to a very high level in athletic competition and baseball, who's risen to a high level as an educator, who's a principal of a school. And just nothing but respect for this man. He's got an amazing story. So with that, Aaron, welcome to the show today. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Matt. It's Friday. It's just a wonderful day in the neighborhood. So I appreciate you letting me be on the show today. Yeah, well, it's definitely my privilege and honor. And our our listeners are going to love this story. And yeah, so I'd say let's sit back and get ready for a great story because Aaron is as real as it gets and his story is amazing. So Aaron, if you could take us back to childhood and tell us a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up. Just give us a little bit of the background before we get into some of the more challenging things that you've endured and overcome. Just give us some background, please. Sure. So I was born and raised in Western Kentucky, in Hopkins County, as a matter of fact, by two loving parents, Gary Clark and Carolyn Clark. She was the daughter of a Baptist minister. He stayed in the ministry for 50 years. And then my dad was a blue collar worker. His dad owned a gas station, and then he learned to work on cars and take care of them and also worked for GE. Went from doing ballasts in refrigerators to working on compression chambers on jet engines, uh, which was pretty amazing. Did all that without a college degree. I had an older brother who was six years older than me as a professor in Georgia, has been educator of the year down there. So I've got some big shoes to fill as far as achievement in my career. So, But I had a loving family, grew up in the church, and my extended family had a ton of educators within that. Some taught high school. My mom worked at the health department teaching sex education in high schools, so she was kind enough to avoid my class whenever she came to the high school to teach it, and then, uh, um, <laughs> yeah. and then ended up meeting my wife, actually, in high school. 
she had a friend ask me Uh-oh. to go to prom with her. And so oh. we, we worked that out. I was a sophomore <laughs> and she was a junior. And unfortunately, my mom said no. And so we had to kind of revisit that later. And so we reconnected and I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart. What? Three wow. beautiful children. Yeah. This is super cool. So a young lady at the time had a friend and the friend asked you, now we didn't know this at the time, you'd end up marrying this young lady over here, a high school sweetheart. But before you got to that, her friend is the one that asked you to the prom. Well, uh, she was asking wow. on her behalf. Yes. Yeah. Oh, she's behalf. asking on yeah. behalf of, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So the matchmaker friend. Great. The matchmaker, great. That's but right. your mom said yeah. no. What, what was up with the mom saying no? Very conservative in that way and said, hey, you know, this is a special moment. You can't just keep going to proms and stuff like that. So she's like, okay, not this year. You're too young. So then next year we, we ended up going. So okay. it, it worked okay. out, but it was kind of interesting. She still gives me grief about that. My <laughs> wife. Excellent. Okay, good. Well then take us forward. So high school sweetheart, what's your wife's name? Stephanie. You met Stephanie, mm-hmm. high school sweetheart. So take us forward from uh, high school sweetheart to what comes next. Okay. So yeah, we progressed through school. I was pretty good at baseball. She was a really good athlete and a volleyball player. She ended up getting a scholarship to play at a small Division II school near us and went there for her freshman year. I was still a senior in high school at that time. I proposed to her on Christmas night as a senior in high school, so I was pretty serious and committed, and so was she. And so we were engaged from that point forward for about four years. I got a scholarship to play at the University of Southern Indiana, play baseball, and she joined me there, got her degree in hospital administration and started working, graduated early actually and started working. And then we got married when I was a junior in college, finishing up my baseball career and very atypical of the college student, as you would imagine, but it was a great experience and it kept me kind of grounded so that I would stay focused on what mattered most, getting the education and moving forward. I had goals of getting my PhD in history, wanted to teach like my brother in college working through that and ended up getting a bachelor's degree in history from University of Southern Indiana, a master's degree in Eastern Kentucky University, where my wife also pursued a second bachelor's in nursing and became a nurse thereafter. And then we moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, so I could do that PhD work. That's where kind of the story takes off, where I ended up becoming a public educator instead of a professor at a university. Yes. So Yes. That was the first story that you shared with me that really opened my eyes to like real life things that can happen that just completely shocking out of nowhere that just change the course of where we go in our lives. So please set us up. You're living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Take us from that moment forward and please share the story. Thank you. Yes, sir. So we had our first child, Nolan. We had him before we left Richmond, Kentucky. And when he was six weeks old, we moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, so I could start setting up for the PhD work at the University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. And my wife began working at the emergency room there close to campus. We had finished up the fall semester. was We were finishing up the spring semester, and so were the high schools. We were living in an apartment complex not far from campus, and they were having a graduation party for one of the residents there up at the clubhouse. It was about 200 yards from our apartment. And one night I was putting my son to sleep. If you have any children, you know that at that point you sleep like the dead because you're so exhausted when you have young children. So I turned off my cell phone, turned off everything, had the noisemaker going, had finally gotten him to sleep, just zonked out. And so about four in the morning, I hear rapid banging on my door. And as I said, my wife had been working in the ER at the local university hospital. I go to the door and it's her and she was supposed to be on shift. And she said, Aaron, Aaron, why didn't you you answer your phone? I said, well, uh, we were sleeping. 
thought that you know, everything's okay. But she said, I wanted to make sure you're okay. I wish you would answer your phone. Are you and Nolan okay? And we were. But she was working in the hospital and they were receiving gunshot wound victims. So as she was working on them, she said, where are these people coming from? They said the apartment complex down the road. And that was our apartment complex. There were six gunshot victims because gang members, six gang members showed up to the graduation party and one of the members danced with the wrong girl and they took exception to it and they pulled out a pistol and started shooting up the place. And so that obviously was scary as new parents, new to the gang of parenting and adulting. Yeah. Safety was a major concern. And so we really had to reflect and decide what our next steps would be. Would it be to stay put where there was just a gang-related shooting? What's best for our child? What's best for our safety? So we started praying and thinking. As we did that, uh, my wife, you know, she felt compelled that we needed to go somewhere safe. And I agreed. And also, I felt God calling me to not university education, but to public education so that I could have an impact on the kids of that age to prevent some kind of tragedy like that from happening again. So I felt compelled also to go to the community that poured so much into us. And so we ended up going back to Hopkins County and I became a high school U.S. history teacher there and a baseball coach. That was my mission field from that moment forward. Public education has been and always will be my mission field. Wow. So thank you for sharing the story. It's amazing because you just have Nolan. He's six weeks old or just after. Wife's working in the emergency room. Six people come in, gunshot wound, and they come from your apartment complex. You pray about it. You and your wife talk about it. And you make a decision and a commitment that you're still following to this day, going to public education. And that's totally different than going to become a college professor. So can you take us back to the day of or the week of or the month after that shooting happened and walk us through what you were thinking and how you came to that conclusion? You said you prayed about it. Anything else that went into that decision to change course and commit to this path you're on now? Sure. For a little while, I'd been thinking, is this the right thing for me? It just wasn't sitting right with me that PhD work and going to, to, to teach at the university, just it wasn't quite fitting for me. I'm not sure why. Apparently now I know. It just wasn't the course I was supposed to be on. But yet the conversation with my wife, we didn't have anybody in Tuscaloosa. We needed a network. We had a nearby sister-in-law. My wife's sister was there and her family, but it was just, it wasn't easy to connect that way. When that moment of crisis came, we went to our families. We went back to the community that raised us and our friends and neighbors. And so in those moments, we were just thinking about what's best for Nolan. How can we surround him with people that will protect him, help raise him right? How can I have the biggest impact with kids to be out there with them? And my wife, as a nurse, she can have an impact on everyone's health, you know, and helping them become a better quality of life and to to extend that and to be able to have a positive impact with others. So ultimately, it came down to where can we go where we have the network to do the work that needed to be done, whether that's keeping Nolan safe and any children that would come after, keeping Stephanie and me safe, and then also having the network to reach out and to communicate and being part of that community. We have those connections they know that we're real and we could start right away with some credibility to help intervene and to have a positive impact and steer kids away from poor choices or deadly choices even. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to come back to steering kids and serving them because I know that you probably have kids in your school, your classroom over the years that have come from really challenging environments at home and community challenges. And I want to come back to that in a little while and maybe that's where we kind of rest after we get through your story, because I think that's really important to share 
why. But before we get to that bigger subject, I'd love to just keep hearing a little bit more. You moved back to Kentucky and Nolan's still baby. It's Stephanie. She's a nurse. You're an educator. You're switching into public education. What was that like going back to Kentucky and getting started in education? Take us to that moment when you got back to Kentucky, please. Sure. Uh, I had zero education classes all through that process from undergrad through the PhD work because it was just a different set of skills that you were trying to develop. So I had to enroll at Murray State University in an alternate route to certification program. That's typically what those that are in different industries will go through in order to become educators. So I had to work with my family members that were educators, ask them their input. You know, how do I fast track getting into a school to have that impact I want to have and also have a job to pay bills? And they were able to help me right away. I reached out to my mentor and the person that really helped inspire me to get into education. His name is Michael D. Lowry. He was an educator in Madisonville for 40 plus years. He graduated with my father. I was in his class in seventh grade in our GT history class. And I built the pyramids of Giza for that man because I would run through a wall for him. He was just that inspiring. He marched with Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement with his aunt, just an inspiring individual. And had a tremendous impact. So I got to connect with him. He connected with me with the principal of North Hopkins High School, Deanna Ashby, and she brought me on as the APUS history teacher. And that's how I got into education back in the community that raised me. Okay. Okay. Well, then take us back to, uh, if you can remember this, was this about 14 years ago? Roughly. 14 years so, ago, yes. 14 yeah. years ago. Take us back to that first day on the job. What was it like being an educator for the first day of AP history when you have these students for the first time in front of you? What was that like? It was very, very interesting. Fortunately, they were, well, I had freshmen and juniors. The freshmen were the most interesting because they just, it's, it's really a different dynamic. When they go from eighth grade to freshmen, it's an interesting development. It's like they kind of revert to being children again, like young. So we had to control the classroom, which wasn't something that I had to experience before. I was used to dealing with college kids. And then the juniors, they were obviously a little bit more mature, much more driven because they're looking at where they're going to go for college and how's the best way to get there and how's my GPA going to look. And so they're a little bit more motivated because they're more knowledgeable. And I had the principal's daughter in my class. So that added another layer of pressure to be successful. A deer lost in the headlights, that kind of look, until I got my feet under me after the first couple of days. But that first day was really just something. And setting expectations. My mentors, Mike Quinn, the other people in the department, they said, set your expectations, let them know how things are going to work, and that you're not going to mess around. Um, and then they also said, you know, uh, it's, it's an axiom. It's easier to get easier, but, you know, you got to build a relationship with kids first. I feel everything you're sharing. I'm trying to, on the side in the background here, draw parallels between what I do, working with executives and teams. And I think what you just shared is you got to first figure out the expectations to set. And then after expectations, you're working to build the relationships. So the same principles that when you're teaching students in high school or you're teaching them in even a younger younger than that, or you're working with the adults in business. Either way, it's setting expectations and it's being able to build some relationships. So I like that those principles, they are kind of universal in leadership or when you're guiding people. So thank you for that. Let's keep moving then. So you make it through the first day, the first week, and you and Stephanie are, are in Kentucky now. So take us down the path a little bit here, Aaron. So yeah, Stephanie was working... She loves working with babies. She's a wonderful mom, and she's also just great with helping infants that just are struggling to thrive, that are just having some health challenges. She's wonderful at helping them work through it. She's a wonderful teacher in her own right to help parents understand 
what they need to do to help their child thrive. So she was working in the NICU there and in Owensboro, Kentucky, not far away. We were balancing being parents. Fortunately, we had our grandparents there. So my parents and her parents were there to help support whenever we needed that. I was not a great teacher to start with. I was a stand and deliver type of person. That's the way it worked in college. That was the way I'd gotten it most of the time, except in Mr. Lowry's class. So I had to become a better teacher over the years, and eventually I was pretty good. I still wouldn't say I was great by any means, but to be coachable is important, and I was able to take on some of the things that Miss Ashby taught me, my peers taught me, and to apply some of that to be more successful with the kids so they could be more successful. Taking those AP exams, getting that college credit, and then moving ahead with good values, good work ethic, and some knowledge to go with it. At what um, point did you get your first opportunity to become a principal? When was that? Yes. Okay. So I was given the opportunity to become an assistant principal at the high school where I was. That was an eye-opening experience because I had a friend of mine in the social studies department at the other high school, became my assistant principal first. We were in the same cohort program. And I was like, what's it like, man? What's it like? He's like, I can't tell you. It's not the same every day. It's different every single day. I've never had deja vu a day since I became an assistant principal. And I was experiencing a lot of deja vu in the classroom because it was the same subject every hour, almost. That tells you I wasn't doing a good job teaching either because I wasn't differentiating enough. But then Ms. Ashby, who was my hiring principal, became the superintendent of our district. And there was a vacancy at an elementary school, the one that my kids happened to attend. And she asked me initially, she said, hey, Aaron, do you want to apply for this? And I was like, no, I'm good. We have a great team here at the high school. We're doing some great things. We were a school of distinction. And I wanted to continue to be a part of that and learn there. A few weeks later, she said, Aaron, you're going to apply for this position at this elementary school as a principal. I was like, yes, ma'am, I got it. And so I became a principal at Hanson Elementary School in Kentucky, in the same town where my kids went to school. And that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I had no intentions of being in the elementary level. I had no intentions of the middle school level. thought high school was my jam, sports, everything, all that. And then I got to elementary school. I have not looked back since because of the love from the kids, their enthusiasm for learning, their happiness. You all can't see me, but behind me, I've got all kinds of cards and little notes from my kiddos here at this school I'm at now. And it was the same there. It's just their joy and their positivity is contagious. And I love every minute of it. So you shared it. I think you answered the question I was thinking of. You went from high school to elementary, and that must have been like a complete sticker shock. I mean... You went from being college professor on that track to be a professor to public education in high school. Well, you just shared that sticker shock and how that was different. And then you went to be an AP, assistant principal, and if there's a different challenge, what's an example of a challenge that you might face day-to-day as an assistant principal that we have no idea about here at the listeners? What's that challenge? I don't think people understand how big of an impact a good assistant principal can have on kids, whether it's helping them academically get through something to help them be persistent and graduate, or whether it's intervening when their behavior is not where it should be. There were some kids I spent a lot of time with trying to get them on track, trying to understand the path they're taking is not the path that's going to get them where they want to go. And it's day to day. Unfortunately, the parents get tired of hearing from us. But even then, the task is the same to get them to be successful, to understand what it takes to dig themselves out of something and to rise above. I don't think the public quite knows also the heart of the AP because unfortunately, a lot of their role is discipline, books, buses, and just kind of managing facilities and that sort of thing. Although they're called to be instructional leaders, but the best part of that job is the relationships you build with kids, especially the ones that some folks just kind of give up on. 
and then seeing them walk across the stage or promote to the next grade level, or once they get out of school, the success that they become, whether they become parents, whether they become industry leaders, or whether they're having a consistent job and showing up every day, and you know you had a hand in helping them to persevere, to help them persevere through whatever's happening in their life. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's fast forward a little bit here. Let's go from Kentucky to South Carolina, where you are now. When did that happen? And what was that experience for you and Stephanie? All right. So, you know, I talked about the network of support. And so in Kentucky, for nine years, we, we remained there. I think that was a God thing because, you know, being called there, but also I couldn't do what I'm doing now without having that network of support to help build me up and build my family up to take a risk and to go out and do the work that needed to be done in South Carolina. Also, the mission work, being in schools and having an impact with kids and helping them in the same way we did in Kentucky, just a different mission field. My wife was able to get some experience in, in her role to expand and to do some things differently. She was able to start her own business and to help kids and help families on her own without being associated with a hospital in that way. So they gave her the confidence in order to step out and do that. The experiences that I gained in Kentucky in that community gave me the confidence to be able to go and lead in a different way. But also being here has helped me become, a, I think, a better educator. And that has a positive impact for kids because it's a different set of challenges. It's a different environment. It's a different culture. And in the end, it's all good. And it helps us become better at what we do so that the kids that we have an impact on have a better outcome. So we took that leap because of opportunities for us to grow, opportunities for our children to grow, to experience different things. Over here in South Carolina, it's quite a bit different than Western Kentucky. It was coal fields and cornfields, and there's more to it than that, but that's kind of the general landscape. And then here, it's quite a bit different in that regard. We're close to Charlotte. That has some draws to it. The geography has some draws to it, too. You know, you got the mountains two hours away, you got the beach two hours away, and just secondary opportunities, post-secondary opportunities for the children as well. I have three now. Not have, okay, so not just Nolan. Yeah. There's three three kids yeah. now. Okay. Yeah. And if I'm doing my math correct, I think Nolan's probably around 15-ish. Yeah, he's a freshman uh, in high school, 14. Freshman yep. in high school. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Now he's one of those kids that was in that first day of class and starting over again as a freshman on the pyramid of high school. Awesome. I'm curious. I want to come back to the idea of you went from history professor to committed to being a public educator because you wanted to help influence and guide kids so they could make decisions, learn to make decisions that could help them on their path or journey. And I wonder if you could speak from your perspective now as a principal, as an educator, how are you able to do that and empathize with parents and work with kids who may not have all the opportunities? They may not come from a wealthy background. They may be living in a community that has some challenge to it. And being able to empathize with parents and talk and build up the kids, just how do you do that? Just sounds so challenging from where I sit to understand how someone can operate as a principal. I'm in awe of it. And I'm curious how you might respond to that. Empathy is a huge role in it. And also understanding that you're dealing with children. I mean, like you're dealing with the most precious commodity of anyone is their child or their grandchild in many cases, or their nephew or niece, just depending on the situation with the family. So keeping that in mind and also trying to follow that golden rule, how would I want people to treat me or how would I want them to treat my own children whenever we're working through challenging things like behavior or attendance or you know a learning disability? How would I want people to handle me or the situation with my child? So whenever I make a call, it's not because I want to, 
or whenever my EPs make calls. Not because they want to, it's because this is what the child needs to turn the page in order to be successful, whether that's developing coping skills, learning the curriculum and the instruction, or just learning how to get along with their peers. And so empathy, understanding, and then initially building that relationship. I don't know all of my families, but I know a great deal of them. And I know nearly all of my students' names. And I think that's a huge piece of building that. Hey, my principal called my name today. He gave me a high five or gave me a hug. He said, hey, I hope you have a great day. I'm glad you're here. Well, think back to your own. Like you may have had a wonderful principal. The only time I saw them was when I was in the hot seat. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be somebody that they could count on in good times and in the challenging times. And so I hope that kind of flows out to the families. COVID put a wrinkle in that though. I didn't get to meet a lot of them when I got this job. But fortunately, we've been able to open up and see more families and bring them in and have conversations. And we have a wonderful, wonderful community we work in. And I'm thankful for that every day. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think to ask about that. Let's talk about COVID for a minute, because my experience as a parent, I had a kid, my daughter was going to school for the first time. And her very first semester of school was spent on Zoom as a kindergartner. The oh second half of kindergarten was the second half of 2020 or the first half of 2020 in the spring of 2020 when we went to Zoom. So our experience was we're just trying to get by, sending them to school and trying to keep our jobs and do what we're doing as parents. What was it like as a principal having to figure all of that out on the fly with your students, with your own life? I mean, can you talk about that for a little while, Aaron? Yes, sir. Uh, it was it was definitely challenging. And my head is off to all the teachers that made it happen because as principals and assistant principals, we had to direct, hey, this is what's happening. How can we support it? But the teachers made it happen. So whenever we had to distribute laptops, how are we going to make this happen? We did it like a McDonald's drive through or Chick-fil-A because we were pretty darn efficient. So uh, we just kind of was that a, was that there. a slight at McDonald's there for a second, or was that more ap- appreciation of Chick Fil A? <laughs> appreciation of Chick Fil A, because I love Chick Fil A. I love Chick Fil A yeah, too. Yeah. They're always yeah. super nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so yeah, we kind of did a drive through style, and the teachers wow. were able to develop packets of materials for weeks of work at the drop of a dime, and we were able to get those distributed in the same way. And then after those packets, we were able to turn and pivot and develop online curriculum and online projects. And I was an AP at Saluda Trail, and the team that we had there when that happened were so good at planning and executing that from our principal to the AP team, to our curriculum coordinator, to our STEAM coach, and then, you know, all of our teachers and staff. They bought into it and ran with it, and we made it happen. And it was exhausting. Wow. Yeah, I can only imagine. The next year was the AB schedule, and we had to figure that out, and the busing, and the who needs to be in this section, and who needs to be in that section, and who's not going to come in at all, and how do we make them, you know, how do we get connected with them? And so that was a challenge. And then the virtual academy. So there were a lot, a lot of challenges that we were able to tackle, primarily through collaboration, teamwork, and openness. Because, hey, this is not my wheelhouse. Help me get better at this so that it can be a strength for me. I was over the virtual academy liaison, and I am terrible with computers, but it strengthened me to become better at computers and technology. So it was a challenge, but also had its benefits in the end. But exhausting is a good way to describe it, but also pretty incredible on the part of our educators. I love that. It's exhausting and incredible. It can be both at the same time. I love that. That sounds a little bit like eternal optimism. So I'm a big fan of that. So thank you for sharing that. So we fast forward to the present and now's a chance. If you want to give a shout out to your school and staff now, what's your math? Tell us a little bit about your school now, please. 
All right. I am at a school of about 515 students at Mount Gallant Elementary School. We Mount have Gallant. a staff of 75. Yes, Mount yeah. Gallant, the castle. The castle. Yes. We are the knights at the castle. And the night way nice. is the right way, and it starts with me and nice. every kid in the building. So they are a tremendous group. They're curious, the, the teachers and the staff and the students, they're all curious, the community, the families, the churches and our community partners, they all chip in because they want to see the kids succeed. They all have high values, high expectations, and we want to make sure that the kids meet those. And we try to partner with the families as much as we can to make that happen. Like whenever we do call, it's Team Sally. We're on the same team together. It's not you versus me. It's Team Sally for her benefit. We have a tremendous school. We have a tremendous community. They do a lot of work in professional learning communities on the grade level, which is about collaboration, which is about openness, it's about using data to help kids meet them where they are and get them to where they need to be. And so they're doing great work with that. Our special areas, which includes art, PE, music, guidance, media, they're the hardest working folks around. And I'm so proud to be the principal here at Mount Gallant. And then my administrative team, my front office team, I don't want to leave anybody out. So they're, they're incredible. They just make it happen. It's a well-oiled machine and I'm thankful to be here. And then we have the support of Rock Hill Schools and Dr. Tommy Smalsey, our superintendent, and then his staff that are very supportive of principals. And that makes us more confident to move forward, to do what's best for kids and to help our teachers do what's best for kids too. Excellent. Well, I appreciate the story that you've been able to share with us so far, Aaron. This has been really insightful to hear the story of an educator from the ground up and even the uncertainty and the challenge of day one and getting in there and building relationships and setting some expectations to all the way going through COVID to now. Thank you. I'd love to ask you if we want to find out more about you or follow your story and what you have to share online, like on social media, where might be a couple places that we could connect with you and follow you, Aaron? Sure. On Twitter, you can follow me at Aaron Clark 29. I'll usually post educational things. It may be some curricular things. There may be some personal stuff about my kiddos or, or something that's good that's happening in our community. Usually it's related to education or uplifting things, sports, just about staying positive, persevering, doing what others aren't willing to do to be successful as long as it's moral. You can also follow at Mount Gallant Elm, which is our school Twitter account. And uh, we post some things there about what's going on in the school, check out what the kids are doing in the classroom, the work that they're producing, and the high levels of instruction and the high levels of learning that are taking place every day at the castle. And then we have our PTA webpage on Facebook. It's Mount Gallant PTA. It's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of information there just to check it out. I have an educational consulting page, pretty elementary not very fancy, but it's Clark Consulting, Clark Educational Consulting. You can check it out. It's got kind of a graduation cap logo that helps you select it out. Excellent. There's a couple of Clark Consulting ones. I just started to follow you on Twitter as we're speaking here. And I'm smiling looking at the Twitter account here. This is good. Very good stuff. Mount Gallup Principal, Education Consultant, Daddy, Baseball Instructor. Love it. Love it. Good stuff. You've done some retweets of some John Gordon and other educational things. I like it. This is good stuff. Yes. How are you learning? How are you growing? Let's talk about books for a second. If there is a book or a couple of books that you could recommend that have inspired you in your journey, what might be a book or two that you found value in, Aaron? Sure. And I'm going to start off with this. I hated reading. As a middle schooler and then early high school, I hated it. We had to do these accelerated reader programs and it put all kinds of pressure on us because I'm a slow reader. I still am, but I retain what I read. With your kids, anybody listening to this, with your kids, be patient because they may really be taking it in 
It just may take a little while to read it. But some of the things that I read that inspired me or helped me develop, John Gordon's a huge one. One of my friends introduced the energy bus to our school, and I've been reading John Gordon ever since. I had a friend of mine, Andrew Self. He became a principal this year in Owensboro, Kentucky. He was my AP for a little while at Hanson. I just sent him John Gordon's The Power of Positive Leadership, also Stephen H.R. Covey's The Speed of Trust. I'm working through that. That was a recommendation from my superintendent. I love that book. It's dense, and I'm a slow reader, but I'm learning a lot from it, especially about keeping commitments to myself. I'm good about trying to keep commitments to others, but it's the ones to myself, and that helps me be better at being healthier, doing what I need to do to be better for them so that in the end, everybody benefits. And then I love DeFore's work on professional learning communities. That's something that I've bought into in Kentucky and saw great results as a teacher myself on our social studies team. Some of the work that we did through PLCs led to great achievement for our students. And then it's carried over into every school that I've been to because I believe in it. So Richard DeFore's work on PLCs. Richard, okay. Learning by Doing is the name of that book. Learning by Doing. Oh, I love it. That's one of my major things is modeling. I love this. Modeling. Learning by doing. Mm-hmm. One more, if I could, is um, by Ryan Leak. It's called Leveling Up. I haven't gotten into that one yet, but that's next up on my book list. And it's just things that you can do. It's like 12 things you can do to take yourself to the next level professionally or personally. And I plan to jump on into that one once I finish up with Covey's book. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Well, let's go to music for a second. Is there a type of music or a genre or an artist or a song that fills your cup and inspires you, Aaron? Yes. Honestly, I listen. I guess I'm putting this out there for the radio company, but K-Love. I, I love K-Love. Every time I get in the car in the morning, I turn that on. It keeps me focused on what matters. keeps me focused on the mission. And then when it's secular, I love Everclear. It's not necessarily the cleanest music, but it's something I grew up listening to and it brings me some joy. So I, I don't have a particular genre that I listen to a ton. It's a good mix of country and, and rock and some hip hop. But when I'm feeling down, sometimes I'll listen to Aloe Black. I'm the man. <laughs> oh. That's picked me up a little bit. Yeah. That is on my playlist yeah. as well. That's on my more. Yeah. Li- oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I listen to that. I yeah. remember hearing that for the first time, watching a Kevin Garnett, Colin Kaepernick commercial on TV. And I remember that was a song in the background when they were on a bus getting booed by everybody. And I remember hearing that song and I downloaded That's been on my wake up every day list ever since then. It's so cool. You said, Aloe Black, I'm the man. That's good. Yeah. Or the man. It. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. Good, good. Well, last question here, Aaron. We'll wrap things up. This is the Eternal Optimist podcast. When I say the words eternal optimist, what does that mean to you? You know, optimism doesn't mean you see everything with rose-colored lenses. It means that you can see through the struggle to what's on the other side. And so for me, an eternal optimist is somebody that keeps the main thing, the main thing, and that's where you're trying to go. And you just persevere through any challenges that come your way. And that's that resilience that I want to develop in myself and those that I lead and then in the kids that we impact, creating that resilience and that perseverance. So that eternal optimism, I get it. I get it. I'm on board. And you will face challenges and you will feel down, but you're built for it. A friend of mine, Marlon Smith, He said, when we were facing all the COVID challenges and all the stuff that was coming our way, Aaron, you're built for it. And I remembered that from that day on, and I'd love to get you connected with him, actually. We're built for it. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what's ahead of you. You're built for it. Mm, Awesome. Aaron, we love you. We thank you. We appreciate you for sharing your story today. God bless you. And just thanks so much for being with us today. That was my pleasure. Thank you, Matt.